we have a, a, a very interesting passage, a passage that I often refer to, and I don't often think of the context in which I refer to it, and, and the same may come for you, as there are, are a couple of verses here that we bring up at sort of random times as, as they come up in life and as we think about helping others to know Jesus. They are very common things for us. Um, but here, I just want to make sure we see them in their context. How does God use them and where does God use them so that we can use them properly? Before we get into the passage, it's uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 5. We need to remember where we've come from. This great book, this uh, letter to the Roman church that Paul has written is explained in great detail and theological depth the gospel, and yet he has kept it uh, somehow at the same time very simple, where no matter how much he continues to build, it can be shrunken down very cleanly to understanding um, God and his creating work. We have rebelled against God, that God has even though we have not sought him and are hostile to God because of our sin, he has sent his son Jesus so that we would be justified, declared righteous in Christ, so that we would have no condemnation because of Christ. And now that we uh, have this eternal life through Christ, he will provide us not just with Jesus, but with all things. As we saw in Romans 8, that if he would give us his son, why would he not give us everything else we need? Because his son surely is greater than all of those smaller gifts. And now as we head into Roman, as we headed through Romans 9 into chapter 10 and then into chapter 11, we see um, what some scholars would call a hiccup in the middle of the letter. I don't think it's a hiccup at all. I think it is a, it's a turning point. It's a centerpiece to show us um, as a whole why the gospel, why the good news of Christ, when rejected by the Jews, has not been something by which we say, well, the, we just kind of give this little theological point in the middle about the Jews, but how that is the center of all things and how God has brought the truth through the Jews and now to the Gentiles and how everything hinges there in what Christ does. So in chapter 9, we learned um, these uh, uh, difficult sometimes teachings for us that God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. That God chooses to love some, and he hardens others. And while you may not want to believe in something like that, or might say, that just seems too difficult, it, we can't take God's word and say, we're going to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like. We come saying, if this is what's true, then it, it's true. It, it is what God gives us. It's what God says, and it's what God does. And so we try to understand it as best as we can, though the, the depths are, are, are something we cannot truly fathom and understand completely. If we could understand God completely, then God would be a God of our making, not a God who is infinitely greater than us. So the more I can explain to you, this is what God is like, and we say, oh, I can understand everything about God. It's all so clear. The more I can just say, oh, the Trinity is like this. You know, God's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's three and he's one at the same time. He's one God in essence, but he's three persons. Simple, easy, right? No problem. We look into the world and we try to find examples, but none of them quite match up, do they? Do, do we ever find one thing in essence that is also three distinct things at the same time that are all the same essence, but three distinct things that all have a relationship with each other, a deep, abiding, everlasting, eternal relationship, and yet 
they're one. It just it, it, it blows and boggles the mind, and yet it is true. It is not a contradiction. It is simply something that is beyond our full understanding. And so we realize that with our faith, there is going to come things by which we must take by faith, right? This should be pretty simple. If, if we simply just have a knowledge, a true knowledge of everything firsthand, that's one thing. But we have a faith, not that is absent from the facts, but a faith that comes through a number of things that are factual, that are true, that are historical. And when those things prove themselves true, that helps us to rest and trust in God. When things become difficult, especially in places like Romans chapter 9. And so when he says, I will have mercy on whomever I will, and God will harden whomever he will, then we say, God is good. We know these things are true. We know God is good. We know that he loves. We know that he saves. And therefore, when God chooses some out of all of sinners for himself, it is good of God to do that, and it is something that we do not deserve. And the more we say, well, how could God not choose all? Why wouldn't God choose everybody? We can't come to the potter and say, why have you made us the clay like this? We're the clay. And so we trust that what he has done is good and that what we all really deserved is his judgment and punishment. And the fact that we don't get that shows how really, truly good and gracious God is. So we come to chapter 10, which starts with, Paul talking about his heart's desire that God may take his, his, his brethren, that he may take Paul's people, Israel, and that he might be merciful to them. He longs for that, but he realizes that they have a zeal for God that is not based on knowledge. Now, if there's anybody in the world at the time who had true knowledge, it would have to be the Jews. Matter of fact, we see that very point made in Romans as well as other places. We can just look at the Old Testament and just know it just by looking at it. The, the word of God, the truth of God, the knowledge of God and, and all salvation has come to the Jews. One scholar once said, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Uh, if you're going to choose people, choose a powerful people, choose a, a, a mighty people, choose a wise people, choose a people that have something already in themselves. But it seems that it is odd that God chooses a people that will continue to rebel against him. But the truth is, all people continue to rebel against God apart from God's intervention. And so when, when Paul thinks of the great gospel that he has explained to the first eight chapters. Then he comes into chapter nine and he starts saying, God has hardened some and God has been merciful on some. He realizes that a, a lot of where God's hardness comes is to his own people. To the people who have been given the oracles of God. The people who have been given the word of God. The people to whom all the prophets came. They continued to rebel, and so they have a zeal for God, but it's not a zeal based upon knowledge. It is a zeal despite 
the knowledge being there, they have not taken it and had that zeal built upon the knowledge. The zeal is built upon something else. And that is one of the most dangerous things that can happen to any truth, right? Is that somebody can take that truth and tweak it to make it their own. You watch enough American Idol and you hear uh, uh, Randy Jackson always telling people, you know, either you did or did not make that song your own. You've got to make it your own. Make it, give it your own style. Give it your own design. Change it up a little bit. Change, change it so that it becomes yours, so that you stand separated from this famous artist that made this song famous so that you become your own singer. That's the, what makes you great. That's what makes you an American idol. And so the way we make idols is by taking something that has been given to us that is good and that we should respect as God's truth, God's word, this true knowledge, and we make it our own. And we write it in our own way. We interpret it in our own way. We try to understand it in our own way. When we read something we don't like, we say, well, we, we must be able to find a different way to explain it. Let's find a way to explain it so that it appeals to the way I think. And how much more dangerous is that? The eternal God gives us his word, and we, his sinful people, decide to try to give it our own angle, to tweak it a little bit because of how we feel about the way something is said. And it is a sad fact that there are many who um, just hate some of the truths found, especially in Romans chapter 9, and just cannot accept them, who I have heard in public debates, heard by hundreds and thousands of people, and they have said... How can God be like this if he is loving? If he's a loving, he's, I, I believe that God is loving. Therefore, this can't be true. It must be something else. And how dangerous for us to go, my feelings are going to affect the way God's word is read. Where instead, when God's word is read, it should affect our feelings. All of that to say, now we come into Romans chapter 10. Where Paul says, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved because they have this zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law because Christ fulfills it. The goal of the law is the coming of Christ who will fulfill the law. The goal of the law was never that we would be able to keep it and achieve something for ourselves. That doesn't make the law bad. The law is good. The problem is with us, not with the law. Romans 10, starting in verse 5. Paul continues in this way by quoting a bunch of scripture. He says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Let's think that through now. This is from Leviticus chapter 18. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, that not they shall live by them like they shall do them, but they shall be alive. You get what I'm saying? The difference, it's not that, you know, you shall live by my rules. It's that if you do my rules, you will live. Leviticus, let's just read it the way it's found there, chapter 18. Everybody had their quiet time in Leviticus this morning, right? Okay, good. 
You shall, this is Leviticus 18, verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. If you do them, you shall live. Okay? Now, Paul brings this up and it seems to actually defend the idea that Paul has been arguing against in all of the book of Romans. That it is not by the law that you shall live. He brings up a verse that seems to defend the opposite point. If if Moses wrote these words from God in Leviticus that do and then live, then why are you saying it's not do and then live? So Paul quotes it in, in, in which we should be reading it going, that's a little confusing. Now what? Paul follows it by saying, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Parentheses, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Parentheses, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Parentheses, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. All right. Now all of you are going, I have no idea where we are, what we're doing. Okay. So let's, let's figure it out. Paul is distraught because the, his people, the Jews who have all these promises, who have the knowledge if they simply will build their zeal upon the right kind of knowledge, everything will be fine, but they don't. They have a zeal that's not according to the knowledge. So he, he wants them to be saved, but they are separated from God. There is this division. God is not going to accept them for their own kind of righteousness because it's not righteousness at all. Then he quotes Moses seeming to defend the opposite point, but you've got to remember that right after he quotes Moses, he does another thing, which is he quotes... Moses, <laughs> Deuteronomy, is what he quotes next. But the righteous, righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend in the, to the abyss. And then Paul gives the meaning of those things. That is, who will go up to heaven and bring Christ down or who will go in, into the abyss and pull Christ back up. In other words, how will he be resurrected? Who's going to do that? The reason that's written in Deuteronomy, what it's saying there is, can you possibly go into heaven and pull down God's righteousness? Or go into the abyss and pull it up? Christ is our righteousness. So Paul takes it and says, that's the righteousness. Are we going to go into heaven and bring him down? Are we going to go into the abyss and bring him up? Can you do that? We read in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. Why do we read words like that? Because it's God who does it. It is God who makes it all happen. We can't make that happen. He can make it happen. And he does make it happen. So Paul quotes Moses because that's probably what the Jews would then quote. Moses said, you do it and you live. Paul says, yes, Moses said that. But what is the meaning? What is the point? How, does, how do we understand that? We understand it by quoting more Moses. It's called, it's called proof texting, where you go and you say, I want to prove a certain point. So you go and you search out something that sounds right for you and you take it and you say, that's the way it is. 
And then you go to, instead of proof texting, you want to try to fully understand what God is saying. And so you find all the scripture that is talking about salvation and righteousness, and you make sure that you've understood it in its fullness. So you go to Deuteronomy, in which Moses also gives us God's words, and you find out when those questions are asked, they're rhetorical questions, because who's going to do it? Only God could do it. And we find out that when he says, who's going to do this, we're talking about Christ. This is, this is a, a, just a good reminder for you. When you read the Old Testament, some of you are afraid of the Old Testament or afraid of certain books of the Old Testament. Um, and I, I mean, I just, I know this because I've been around lots and lots of different kinds of churches. And I know how Christians think that there's, and, and I've had the same issues and it's not my, you know, it's much easier to go read First Peter than to read Leviticus. It just, it just is. It comes after Christ and it all comes with this, you know, the background of all the stuff taken care of through there. But when you go into the Old Testament, or when you hear the preaching of the Old Testament, you always have to read it through the lens of Christ. It doesn't mean that we do, you know, the old story. You guys remember I've told you before where you have the pastor that brings the kids forward for the sermon, for the kids' little sermon, right? And he says, you know, what's brown and furry and climbs up trees and hides nuts in the ground for winter. And then some kid raises his hand and yells, Jesus. Because every answer is always Jesus, Right? And so we want to be careful that we don't just go, this is, uh, we don't want to make everything in the Old Testament some type of allegory, or we don't want to, 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 to put so, push Christ so hard that we don't let it have its own context. But we have to remember the Old Testament, essentially at its core and, and pervasively throughout, is God's promise to send a Savior. And so if you read it and you don't find that there, you've probably misunderstood it. You understand? So all passages in the Old Testament are about Christ. All passages in the New Testament are about Christ. In the Old Testament, it's about the promise of him coming. In the New Testament, it is about the promise that God has kept and that he has come and will come again. If we don't read all of Scripture through that lens, it, you know, there's a kind of lens, but you know, talk about rose-colored glasses, right? You're looking at the world in a certain way. And it distorts the world. But there's another way in wh which makes it clear. And, and, you know, it's like this. You guys all look much more attractive when I do that. Right? Um, you all look like those thumb people on Spy Kids when I take my glasses off. Which is not, if you know what I'm talking about, that movie. Anyway. Um, if, you don't, if you don't know it, don't watch it. It's a little creepy. But when I take my glasses off, I mean, I, I can tell where Ruth and Ruby are because they're wearing Christmas colors. You know? But if I had to determine who you are, I'd have, to, I'd have to make a real effort to do that. But when I put my glasses on, suddenly everything becomes clear. Very, very clear. And I know all of you by name, and I can pinpoint exactly where you're sitting and whether or not you're paying attention or sleeping. Y you see? Oh, stop it. <laughs> and so when we look at Scripture, Christ gives us the lenses by which we go, yes, that is it. That is the fullness of, of all that God meant to do. When Paul goes into the synagogues, the synagogues are where the Jews are, not the ones who believe in Christ, but the ones who have been taught to, to look for the Messiah, the, the Christ. And so when Paul, in, in the early church, as Christ has come, he's, he lived a perfect life, he dies on the cross, he descends into the grave, he is risen from three day, after three days from the grave, he goes teaching, 
and then he ascends to the right hand of God. This is the good news, right? This is the gospel. After that happens, Paul then goes as a missionary to the world. And when he goes, the first place he goes in each city is the synagogue. The synagogue is the place where the people have the Torah, the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the law, the prophets. He, they have these things, and so they would go and read. So Paul would come in, and the first thing he would do is say, let me give you a new pair of glasses. And he would, as the book of Acts tells us, he reasons from the scriptures. He goes into the prophets. He goes into the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament. He goes into these places and proclaims to them, this one that was promised has come. And he is God's son. He is God in the flesh. And he was born in a manger. And, and he was raised. And then he had this three-year ministry. And he gathered disciples. And he taught all these things. And Paul goes and says, The one whom you have been looking for is found in this one, Jesus. And he was crucified for us. And he was risen from the dead. And now he gives new life to all of those who repent of their sins and put their faith in him. And many of the Jews would come and believe. Because he would reason from the scriptures and by preaching gives them glasses to see. Now, not all, not all will see, right? Not all will see. Not all will take the glasses and see. Some will not trust. Some have hard hearts. Some have been hardened by God. All of those things are true. But the lenses by which we read the Old Testament comes in Christ, which is why Paul here just goes Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament as he goes through, starting with quotes that come from the books of Moses. You do these commands and you will live, Moses says. But then he uses other words of Moses to show that it is not amazing works that we can do, but only the amazing works that God can do. To go into heaven and pull it down, to go in the abyss and pull it up. Things that are impossible for us. And what we need to also remember here is that, uh, I was saying this to someone after, after worship last week as well, um, I, I read the Bible, because I believe this is how it's supposed to be read, through covenantal eyes. Covenant, promise. I just explained it in terms of Old Testament as promises made by God. And the New Testament promises kept by God. Promises made of a Savior, the promise kept of a Savior. Promise made of, of a relief for sin and a promise that has come of one who has taken our place and received punishment for sin for us. And so it's promises made and promises kept, Old Testament and New. And now we find that those promises have been kept in Christ. So I see the Bible covenantally through the promises of God. And one of the promises that God makes is to Abram or Abraham when he is given the promise that there will be one who comes through him who God will bless the world. And then there is a covenant that is made with Moses. You do these things and you will live. They are not separate promises. They are not like promises that are overlapping each other. They are promises that are different from each other. Which is why you can read Moses saying, do this and you will live. And you can read Moses saying, there are things you can't do to live. To get the righteousness of God. You can't go to the heavens, you can't go to the abyss and get them. And so the only way that can be done is through faith. 
And the reason that we know that's also true is because the Old Testament promise, the covenant with Moses, is a temporary covenant. Do we get the law through Abraham or through Moses? Moses. Is the law still in effect? What have we read in Romans? Just, we, we just read. For Christ, this is verse 4 of chapter 10, is the what of the law? He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, the law of God that comes and Moses says, you do this and you will live, did Israel do it and live? Did they fulfill the Mosaic Covenant? Did they follow all these promises? And, or did, they, did they live with, fully under the righteousness of, of doing everything that God said to do? No, they disobeyed again and again and again and again and again and again. And we have all the, just go read the prophets. The prophets are, you're disobeying, you're disobeying, you're disobeying. Either some of the prophets are saying, you're disobeying, so God will punish you. And then there's later prophets who say, you're disobeying, that's why God has punished you. And then there's more later prophets who then come saying, you've disobeyed, God has punished you, but God now will restore you. In order to bring about Christ in the world. And then what do the Jews do? When Christ comes, do all the Jews say, yeah, that's it. We've been looking for this promise. God has kept it. No. They rebel. They reject, which is why Paul says, I just, I, my heart is broken for my people. They have rejected, as, as a whole, the coming of Messiah. So if you're going to read Moses, one passage, you've got to read all the passages of Moses Because what it informs us of is this, verse 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, those things that we cannot accomplish, those works, the righteousness that is in the heavens and in the abyss, we can't go find them and bring them to us. It is only things that come by faith. And therefore, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so the only way, the only way the covenant can be kept, specifically the covenant with Abraham, by the way, I just kind of show you this way. You know, the covenant of Abraham is that God is going to take what happened through Adam and Eve's sin that came into the world. And here is where God makes the promise to Abraham and the promise that's made to Abraham is kept forever. The promise to Moses takes up, you know, this much space. It is something inside of the covenant to Abraham. In other words, the Mosaic covenant was never meant to bring salvation. It was meant to bring a savior. It was meant to teach a people to live together faithfully so that the savior could come through them. The Mosaic covenant is something that is there in order to deliver God's people from Egypt, not to deliver them fully from sin. The exodus, the true exodus, is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, not the promise to Moses. The first exodus is because God made a promise to Abraham. And then he makes his promise to Moses and he brings them out. But now the true and lasting exodus has come in Christ. That Truly something that we cannot escape from, which is our sin, not just an evil people, not just Egypt, not just Pharaoh, but that sin is the greatest thing that's holding us down. And God just doesn't keep that promise, this limited promise to Moses, but the unlimited promise to Abraham 
God keeps. Remember Moses goes up on the mountain, he comes down, Ten Commandments, and he sees them making golden calf, and he chucks the tablets down, God has to rewrite them later. The promise made to Abraham, how does he make the promise? How does the covenant get ratified? Abraham passes out. You know, God throws a couple ambient at him. Abraham's out. God then ratifies the covenant by walking through the pieces of the slayed animal so that when God passes through, he says, I'm the one who will keep it. But with the covenant to Moses, what does God say? You keep it. You keep it and you will live. Do they keep it and live? No. They fail and most of them die, except for a remnant. So we have to understand the covenants as God gives them. We're never meant to keep the law to be saved. Anybody who reads the Old Testament that way has not read Christ in the right way. And so what it comes down to is this. It's that word. It's that word that is near you in your mouth. It's the word of faith. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, this is verse 10 of chapter 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, meaning in the last day you put your faith in him and you're not going to face the judgment. You're not going to be ashamed because you've put your faith in the wrong thing. You will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is not trying to give you like some, let's, let's exactly define what you must do to be saved. It's just not the point of it. The point is that general one thing, it is to have faith. The faith that comes, that is in our heart, is the faith that responds from your mouth. You don't respond from your mouth and hope that your heart has changed. Anybody who confesses Jesus is Lord, anybody who confesses their sins and repents before God isn't doing it to get saved. Although they may think that that's what they're doing. They're doing it because their heart already desires it. Their heart's already been changed. It is the response from a heart of faith, not the calling out to change the heart. So it's everyone who believes. Okay, it's just over and over again. It's faith. It's confession with your mouth. It is that those things are all happening because of faith. You won't be put to shame. And then he talks about distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. The exact thing that the questions come. Now as Paul wiggles his way through this difficult stuff in the middle of Romans, he's showing it's, it's not about who you are, how you were born. It's about whether or not you have faith. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your family. I say this all the time. I don't know how anybody could be at this church and miss it. And yet I have, over the years, still heard people in this church say these kinds of things. Hear me. There is nothing that you point to. There is nothing in the physical world, no work you can point to, that shows that you are a Christian. There is nothing you can truly do other than point to faith. When I stand before God, I'm not going to say, here are the things that I did. I will say, here are the things that Christ has done, meaning I've put my faith in the things that he has done. It is, I'm, I'm only able to stand because of Christ. And so that is all we have, which is why everything is based upon 
faith. Verse 13, for everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel chapter 2. It's also what is quoted in the beginning of Acts as Peter gives his first sermon where many are saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Can you call on him in whom you have not believed? Not, not truly. I mean, we can take the word call and give it our own interpretation and say, can somebody just use their mouth and call out, hey, Jesus is Lord, and be you know, smirking and laughing at the same time because they don't really mean it? This doesn't mean you, you can just say it and not mean it. It's saying that you can't say it and think that you're meaning it and have you not be saved. In other words, a part of what it means to proclaim the gospel, if, if you're sharing the gospel with your friends and you're telling them about Jesus, you are preaching the gospel in some respect. And as you're doing that, the ultimate challenge is you say, call upon the Lord and be saved. You need to, to repent of your sins and believe. That's what it means. And so that needs to happen. But can you do that? Can you call upon him in whom you have not believed? It, it, you can't. It's an impossibility. It's, a, it's an understood question, a rhetorical question. You cannot do that unless you believe. There would be no reason to call out unless you believe. And how, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? All right, so you can see there's a progression going on here, right? The, the, the end thing that needs to happen to be saved is call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And so how will you call? Well, first, the, what comes out of my mouth starts with what's in my heart. I must believe. Well, how am I going to believe? Well, the only way I could believe in Christ and what he has done is for somebody to proclaim to me the life and works of Christ that I can put my faith in, that I can say he has done it for me. And so in order to believe, I must have heard the gospel. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? And now you might go, well, what if I read it? <laughs> People, we make these weird arguments for things. But, you know, do I have to hear it, hear it actually preached? Or what if I read it somewhere? What if it was in a tract or in a book or in a whatever? My, my you know, grandpa wrote it in his diary and I went and read it and it talked about Jesus. Well, I can't really believe because I haven't heard it. Would somebody read this aloud to me? Because it's got to be preached. You know, I mean, let's not be weird about it. The, the writing of the gospel is still the preaching of the gospel in some regard, right? It is still those words that have that meaning that it fulfills uh, this purpose. So how are they to hear without someone preaching? It must come to us. And by the way, I, I don't think that just because they didn't have ready access to, you know, cheap paper so that it could be written everywhere. And, you know, when they had the Bible, they didn't have like... Just the Bible. It's like, oh, you know, I'm going to get mine printed and my name's going to be in gold letters on the front. And I'm going to get this really special Bible cover that's made with the bedazzler. And, you know, I, it's just, it's not the way that it worked. They would receive a new letter that's come, a New Testament letter, and it would come to them. And so they, before they would send it on, they'd have somebody copy it down so they would have their copy of that same letter. And then they would pass it on. And then the, that church, that's, you know, the church in that city, they might copy it down as well. And that's why we have hundreds and thousands of manuscripts of different books and letters of the New Testament. 
So how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? They can't. They have to believe. Well, how they believe in whom they have not heard? Well, you can't believe in somebody you've not heard of. I mean, I guess you could just make it up, but that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because you wouldn't really believe in them just because you made it up. You would realize it's a fictitious thing. And so how are they to then hear without someone preaching? You have to be told something that you don't currently know. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? In other words, the gospel doesn't come because people just accidentally go, I, you know, I just, I'm just going to talk about Jesus today. It just, you know, tomorrow it might be pinball, but today's going to be Jesus. It just feels like a Jesus day. It's, it's not haphazard. The gospel is spoken through those who have believed it, who, who do know it, and who are proclaiming it because they have been sent. My, my friend and uh, a worldwide known missiologist, Ed Stetzer, says that essentially what it means to be the church is to be those who are sent. We are sent ones. And, and so hear me on this. Brothers and sisters, if you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I have repented of my sins and believed in Christ, if you say that it is by Jesus alone that you will stand and that in, in which you will stand before God in the judgment and he is your righteousness, if that's what you say, you are one of God's sent ones to where you are, to where you work, to where you go, to where you live, to where you walk, to where you shop, to where you talk, to where you're silent, to all those places you are sent by God. The, the minute you stop being sent is called the minute you die. If you're in the act of dying and you're in the hospital, you are sent to the hospital. And as long as you have words to speak, let them be words about Christ. So how are they to preach unless they are sent? Specifically, though the whole church is God's sent one into the world, and all Christians are God's sent ones, there are some who are very specifically sent to preach in a way that not all of you will preach. And yes, who in this room could be one of those people? He has two thumbs. This guy, right? Uh, there is a special kind of preaching, a special kind of being sent that I have that you do not have. And therefore, my job is to, is to more boldly, more openly do exactly what Paul is saying, which is to go and preach so that they will hear, and so that after hearing they will believe, and so that after believing they will call upon him and be saved. Paul then quotes the Old Testament again, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. It's just the way it is, isn't it? You can go preach every day to every person. If we were the most, most uh, missional, most gospel preaching, most whatever church out there, and every one of us were so active, there was never a person we saw we did not preach to. Would everybody believe? Would most of them would half of them? It would probably be still a very small number of people who really would be saved. And it's the same with Israel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Isaiah, 
Isaiah was actually the one who was told to go preach to a people who wouldn't listen. Right? Where do I sign up for that job? For all of you who are not satisfied in your work? You're not supposed to be. You read Genesis? You're not supposed to be satisfied in your work. If you have some satisfaction in your work, it is just by God's grace you have some satisfaction in your work. And glory be to God and thankful that we are that we have that. But most of us, surely all of us, to some extent, will have us just not be satisfied. And you're going to look to, boy, if I just worked at this place or I had this kind of a boss or I had this kind of situation, and it might get better, but it's always going to have an element of frustration. There's always thorns growing among the crops, right? And it makes it difficult for us as Adam receives that curse back in Genesis. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's that simple. It shrinks it down. This is the whole point. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the word of Christ must go out so that people, and he, you know, he takes those extra steps, but he shrinks it down to those who are going to have faith that will call upon the Lord are the ones who have heard the gospel, heard the word of Christ. In other words, not just heard the word of God. I can go read them something from the Old Testament. It's not going to get them saved. They need to hear the word of Christ. They need to hear the gospel. The New, the New Testament truths must be there. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Well, yeah, they've heard. This is, again, speaking of the Jews, speaking of Israel. Indeed, they have, for, this is Psalm uh, 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's out there. It's gone out. Have all the Jews believed it? Nope. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Did they not get it? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In other words, you have it, but you don't believe it. You don't understand it. Therefore, when God gives it to somebody who is not the Jews, the Gentiles, when the gospel goes to the world, it's going to make you mad. So there was a point in the life of Jesus. There's a point in the life of the apostles where they try and they tell the Jews, but then they just go, okay, stomp the dust off your feet and go. I've, uh, Jesus says, I've, I've tried to get... I've told the religious leaders, I've told them, I've, I've given them the gospel, they don't want it. And so you know what? Go out in the highways and the byways, find the poor and the needy and the weak, and go tell them. They'll come in, they'll come for the feast. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold to say, this is chapter 65 of Isaiah, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. God gives everything to the Jews, and they, many don't believe, many don't understand, or just, a, just a few do. And then God says, well, I'm going to go and give it to the rest, the ones who don't even seek for me. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. This is God's, this is God's work. That even at their most disobedient, God is still the one who sends Jesus with the story of the father who has his hands out waiting for the prodigal son to return. The one, the same father who has the good son, right? The one who stays home, but then is jealous because God has opened his arms to the prodigal. You got to remember the story of the prodigal son is not just a story about the son who runs away. It's about the son who stayed and is jealous that he doesn't get the fattened calf. 
And God says, you've always been with me. You've always had everything that's mine. In other words, he, he's had that. He just doesn't get the party for those who've come back. And what this says in the Old Testament promise was that God is going to make his own people angry because they haven't really understood. They haven't really believed. And when I accept Gentiles in, they're going to rebel and reject Christ. And that's exactly what happens, which is why Paul's heart is broken and why, despite God with his hands out waiting for his people to be embraced by him, they will not come. And so I'll just close this way, and then we're going to sing. And this is, as we're thinking about Christmassy things, you know, as we're, as we're thinking about the incarnation of Christ, as we're thinking about all the time that we have here to celebrate and to listen to some wonderful music, and, and even the cultural stuff is, can be a lot of fun and enjoy it and you know, I went to the lighting on the square and, uh, and, and, and see this, this amazing event. It was, so, it was warm and so many people were there. Just completely packed. I've never seen so many people there singing songs and hymns together after the, the square is lit up. And we have to remember the stubbornness that we all can have, that the world can have. And yet we are called to go and to proclaim to them the good news of Christ. And it's going to be terribly frustrating because most are going to reject it. And we're going to think, oh, if I just say it this way, or I wish I would have used this argument, or I wish I would have... No. There's, there's some who just will not believe. There are some who are hard of heart and hard of hearing. But it is that personal trust, that lasting, deep, abiding faith, that saving faith, not mere intellectual agreement, but it is that deep, inward trust that we have in Christ and that we know fulfills everything that we need. It is that by which we need to live every day. And when we do, when that has truly changed us in here, we will not be able to help but to speak. In the same way that those who hear the gospel and believe it in their hearts, they will not help but to confess Christ, which will lead them into the waters of baptism and into being a part of a local church and then going out with that church on mission. And how can we expect anybody to do that when the church that's been called to that mission sits and soaks and leaves and does nothing? Our job is not to create more opportunities for us to meet together and do more things. Our job is to create opportunities to go and to speak to those who do not know, who have not heard, who have yet to believe. The confession that we have of Christ in salvation now leads to the confession of the gospel to those who have not been saved. How will they hear without a preacher? The answer is not, well, maybe they'll find a book. That's not what Paul is saying. Maybe they'll happen upon a TV show. The answer is they will not hear and believe and confess in Christ as their Savior unless the preacher is sent. And it is those beautiful feet that they use to walk, to go, and to speak. It is those beautiful feet that change everything. And now you can't go change their hearts. God can. Only God can. But guess what he uses? The feet of idiots like you and me. <laughs> How beautiful. Uh, okay, you know what your feet look like. Your spouse really knows what your feet look like. That's why they ask you to wear closed-toe shoes, right? 
I, I've rarely seen somebody with beautiful feet. And if they're beautiful, it's only beautiful for a while, then they grow older and then they're ugly. Feet can be made beautiful not by doing something to their external, but by what they do, what they accomplish. And they only go because it's already been accomplished in Christ. Why would I not tell everybody that? Why would my feet not move for everybody? I'll admit, I've, I've wasted too many opportunities. There's been too many chances. There's been too many times when my feet have been called to move and I've decided to use them a different way. May we use these words from God through Paul to this church. May we use them for us and realize God is calling us to walk and to speak and to confess that all might believe. Stand with me, let's pray, then we're going to sing. I thank you, God. I thank you for this great, amazing letter that um, is meant for this church in Rome, is meant for us 2,000 years later. It is so much good stuff, and yet it is incredibly convicting to me as a preacher and to all of us as sent ones into this world. If we are sent and we will not speak, how will they ever believe? How will they ever hear? The answer is they will never, unless we go. It is a part of what you do. And if we choose to not walk and you long to bring some to yourself, you will use someone else. God, we are expendable in the mission. May we find our calling renewed today. Knowing that some will believe. If we will just go and speak, some will believe. We don't count the numbers who don't believe. We count the numbers who do. And we can only do that when the gospel is proclaimed. May we have courage to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.